We are uh, continuing our series in the life of Joseph. Last week, Jason did a great job. He began uh, the kind of transition. Just to recap for those of you, I think a lot of us know the Joseph story, but he was the son of Jacob, the favorite son. He uh, had a really special coat made for him. He had these awesome, two awesome dreams that he was glad to share with his brothers, which is why they kidnapped him and sold him into slavery. Uh, he spends time in Potiphar's house in Egypt, rises to the top, and then Potiphar's wife makes a pass at him, and he runs, and she falsely accuses him, and he goes to jail, which is where we found him at the beginning of, of the chapter. We're in chapter 41, and Joseph discuss, Jason discussed this last week. And then he interprets the Pharaoh's two dreams, and Pharaoh, where last week ended, and where we will begin this morning as we find Joseph having just essentially his, his ship has come in, right? He's come out of the pit. He's placed in second in power in Egypt. And it's, it's going perfect. It's, it's just perfect. Everything's just perfect in his life from that moment on. Okay, that's not exactly true. We'll see. So we'll read this passage with that in mind, that his ship has come in, but there's a lot coming his way, uh, which is true of, of all of us. We know that no matter what we get... And, and glory, whatever beauty comes our way, often there is a lot of affliction with it. And we're going to see that with Joseph as well. So we're going to just read verses 41 to 52. Um, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring in his hand and put it in Joseph's hand. And clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without you, your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, not related to the Potiphar of recent story, Potiphar, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Esenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we praise you that all the way back at the very beginning in Genesis, you had a plan of rescue. That the seed of Abraham, which is Jesus, would come. And Jesus, you have come. And you've now rescued your church, your people. And you continue to redeem those who are coming to you every day. And Father, we long to one day, someday be united with you in heaven. 
But in our time of sojourning, help us to recognize that we are in, on a mission, that we are on a, in a movement, that we are in a process of fulfilling your, your will in all the land. And I pray that we would join in that mission, Father. Holy Spirit, I pray you would help us see that that is possible because of the rescue you've made to us. In your name we pray. Amen. I, I use this analogy from time to time, but a lottery. Everyone in this room has wondered, what would you do if you won the lottery? It's just, we do it. We all think it. You drive down the highway, you see the, the mega millions at 150 million, and yeah, what would I do? And we all start with this. Every one of you, I know it. You start with this, well, first I would give everyone in my family a million dollars. You know, but you want to get the altruism out of the way, right? Like, I'd give the church some money, you know, I'd give this some money. By the way, we would welcome it. <laughs> but then, whether you get to it or not, what you're really doing, what I'm doing, we're all sort of doing is thinking, like, I'm going to get a yacht. You know, <laughs> I'm going to get a second home. And when I'm on my yacht in the Mediterranean, no one can judge me because I gave my mom a million dollars. She has the cutest little bungalow all paid for back home. And so we have this sort of two-sided thing. Well, Joseph won the lottery. Like, he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, here's what's going to happen to you. You're like number two. He got not Air Force One, he got Air Force Two, the chariot. You can go wherever you want to go. People are going to bow to you. Here's your wife. Here's your house. Here's your job. Here's the land. Have a blast. He won the lottery. What's fascinating about Joseph is in his winnings, he didn't just go off and think, my ship has sailed. I can do what I want. You know, I'll get that grain thing working, and then I'm going to go on. But he, he was on a mission. He was in a movement. Uh, this past week when I was in Colorado, the speaker that was there, Carl Ellis, uh, it was very academic. I have to be honest. It was hard to focus. It was so beautiful outside. That's where I wanted to be. Thankfully, someone emailed me the notes, and I fully plan to read them again. But it's going to be a part of a manuscript he releases. But essentially what he is saying is this. From the beginning in the scripture, there is a movement that is happening, the movement of God and God's plan. And along the way, there are these establishments that are formed that often will start as institutions to help the movement, like a church. But will eventually, what makes it an establishment is it will actually try to take out the movement. So when Jesus shows up, for example, you don't have uh, all of Israel saying, finally, you know, praise, you know, what do you have? You have the Pharisees saying, wait a minute, this is going to ruin our establishment. Let's take you out. And so the movement and the establishment end up battling all through scripture. And what we find in Joseph, and I just want to draw out the obvious thing, is he is a movement person, not an establishment person. Had he been an establishment person, he could have said, look, I'm out of the pit. I can interpret dreams. I can gather the grain. That's easy enough. All we need is enough for really Pharaoh's household anyway, right? And uh, I'm going to live it up. i got seven years to really enjoy life and then just store enough grain to make the next seven, and it's perfect. But he doesn't do that. It happens so smoothly, we don't even pay attention. But he goes all over the country. He carries out the mission, this movement, so well they could not count the grain any longer. He took his mission so seriously. And so I just, the, the heart, what put, the Lord is putting on my heart in this passage is that when we are engrafted into Christ, we are engrafted into a movement 
Yet I think we are often living like we're part of an establishment. And I think every one of us has to ask this, our, this, ourselves that question. Are we wanting to have an established home, marriage, career, church, religion? Or are we aware, like Joseph, that we're part of a movement? Are you willing to be a movement Christian? So there are three things that I think Joseph has in this passage that we can learn from that will help us move into that direction. I don't, I, don't, I don't assume any of us are fully ready to say, yeah, I'm a movement Christian. I think we're all on the fence. I think with the pandemic and other things happening, we're, our hearts are being exposed. And so let's learn from Joseph and find out maybe a few things that we could see how we would maybe re-up the movement. And if you're not a Christian or you're a Christian who's like, I'm only the establishment kind, those two are the same thing, by the way. Um, this might be the opportunity to really repent and join the movement of Christ as he brings in his people. So the first thing Joseph does is he knows the future. Right, Joseph is 30 years old, we're told, in verse 46, when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's 13 years since being ca taken captive. That's 13 years since he had two dreams. Remember these dreams he had were him at the center of something with some form of bowing by his family. And we, again, we've, you can go back and forth on what he knew and he didn't know, but it's clear that he's had 13 years to process what those dreams mean. In fact, you might even argue that he's, he has a master's degree now in dream interpretation. It's possible that the reason he's so ready for the cupbearer and the baker is for the first eight years or however long that process was, he's praying and thinking about the dreams and he's learning what they might mean before the baker and the cupbearer pop in with their dreams. And he's probably like, this is easy. God interprets dreams, let me tell you. And then when Pharaoh shows up, he's even more ready to interpret these dreams. And what he knows is this. He is not the center of the story. That had to become clear to him. So the dreams, if you remember back in, in, when he was 17, uh, he felt like they were, he would be the center of the story. No doubt his brothers thought he thought that. But it's clear to him now there's something beyond him. There's a future that's going to happen. And that it becomes clear to him because with the Pharaoh who dreamed that there would be seven years of famine followed by, or excuse me, abundance, followed by seven years of famine, I think Joseph's beginning to get a clearer picture of his calling. So, jo so he is able in this season of abundance to stay in, on movement, on mission. I was thinking about this with Paul. When Paul is writing his letter to the Philippians, Paul is in prison. We don't know if he's in Rome or Ephesus, but he's in prison. And he writes this letter. And at the very end, he's thanking them for the gift. They sent him some gift. And he says... Uh, whether I'm in abundance or I'm in need, I know how to be content. And he's, it's verse 12 of chapter 4. He says, I know the secret of contentment. And for him, what he says is that secret is he does all things through Christ who strengthens him. Now, all you weightlifters out there have totally butchered that verse for the rest of us. How many of you have heard that? Oh, I'm going to lift 325 today. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, what is Paul saying? 
I can abound and I can be in need because I live every part of my life in union with the risen Savior who dwells in me. All of Philippians bears out that truth. And so for Joseph, who doesn't yet know who the seed will be one day Sunday, is certainly aware that when he's storing up grain greater than the sand of the sea, that that very description was given to his great-grandfather Abraham, speaking of the seed that would redeem the world. He now knows his future. He's part of this future mission that will redeem the people of his family. Yes, the Egyptians will be included, but he's now aware that his own family will come and receive this sustenance. And he's understanding that more and more each day he knows his future. Do we? Do we know what we've been called to? Are you, when you think of your life, are you longing for your future with Jesus? I'm going to ask you some harder questions if I have time at the end, but, but what would it look like to begin to long to be with Jesus? I think for most of us, that is so abstract. That what we've done, like the lottery, is we're like, one day, someday, I'll be with Jesus, and that's why I give the, the million dollars to my mom. But I'm going to live it up right now. What the Bible is calling us to do is graph that together. My longing to be with Jesus will inform what I do now. Right? And just the same way that you're longing to graduate, you're longing to get, have that wedding, you're longing to increase profits, you're longing to carry out that vacation plan. We are very good at l being excited today about future plans. Somehow when it comes to faith, we derail. And so let's look at what I think are the two major reasons for that. And that's our next two points. Uh, I think one is we don't remember our past, and the secondly is we don't understand our present. So that's our three points of our sermon. We've already dealt with the future. Now let's look at the past. Uh, Joseph has this moment, there's these few verses where we're told a very intimate detail of his life, and that is this, before the year of the famine came, he has these two sons. Right, he names the first Manasseh and the second Ephraim or Ephraim. Now, that's not insignificant. The 12 tribes of Israel, there isn't usually considered a tribe of Joseph. So some would say there's the, the two tribes of Joseph. Joseph's tribe is really the half Manasseh and the half Ephraim. So when you think about Jacob's sons and the future of Israel and the patriarchs that plant the church, it's these two sons. And I want to talk about Manasseh for this point because his name is super interesting. It means, as it tells us in the passage, God has made me forget all my hardship and all of my father's house. Now, if you were listening, point number two is this. To be a movement Christian, to be able to live in the present, knowing the future, you have to also understand your past. And yet Joseph just named his son, I'm forgetting my past. Right? So isn't that a, a verse or a situation that would actually teach the opposite of what I'm saying? Uh, as soon as you can, forget it. You cut it off. You get rid of it. Pretend it never happened, right? That's what he says. He names his son Manasseh. For God has made me forget all my hardship and my father's house. It's behind me. I'm in the present. I'm pressing forward. And then he's walking down the cobblestone Egyptian street with his little stroller. And everyone's like, Joseph, what's your son's name? 
Canasta. Uh, what is what is that? I forget something. Yeah, uh, I name my son. I'm going to forget all the hardships, and I'm going to forget my family. You know, like he says that 17 times a day. The child's like finally four years old, and he said it 3,000 times. What's he doing? He's, in, he's inviting the memory of his hardships. He's inviting the memory of his past. When we were at ordination uh, exams, so Wilson had his exams this week, passed, did beautifully well. I was envisioning him sitting over here, and I was going to say this to him, but it's just empty seats. He must be traveling this morning, or he's at home sleeping. If you're at home, um, he did really well, but the final exam was on church history. And Richard Bowles was there, who's our historian. He's a historian, so I knew he would ask a question, and he did. But I'll let him tell you what he asked. But the question to, to Wilson, it was a softball, was this, why do we study church history? And he basically said, he accredited to Winston Churchill, there have been several who said it, but those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And what's interesting is this, the people who are going to refuse to process their life story with the goal of never experiencing that harm again, are actually far more likely to experience it in the present than anybody else. It's the people who can say, I'm a willing to look at these hardships and I'm willing to see what God was doing in this past so that I don't repeat it in the present. I think it was, it was Winston Churchill whose exact quote was, those that fail to learn from history are doomed. You don't just know about it. You have to learn from it. We're not going to have another person named Hitler. Like, that would be extremely strange. I think almost everybody would go, time out. You're telling me that country's name leader is Hitler? I'm super aware of my history. Like, no, that's not how it's going to happen. You've got to, like, study what's going on underneath the surface of history to understand when it's playing out in the present. How much more for our own lives? Right, I remember I had a roommate in college who, when he was a kid, I don't know how this happened. I guess he intentionally lit a fire. I don't know. He's playing in the closet, lights the fire. He's like four. He's old enough to know that's not good. Closes the door and goes downstairs and acts like nothing happened. So freaked out by it. Didn't go well. I think the house literally it burned down. Aaron's house, you know, Emily, it burned down. Don't do that. If you light a fire or there's a fire in your past, those that will look at it and put it out because of the redemption of Christ are the ones that will heal. So I was reading in Ephesians this week and without really connecting it to this sermon, but guess what? As a preacher, everything connects to your sermon, right? Which is both, it's just awesome. It's my favorite part of reading the Bible when I'm preaching it because then I just make sure it fits. No, I don't do that. Paul is talking about the new life. And he says something that all of us have heard that I wonder if we've really pondered. He's talking about how the Gentiles, that is unbelievers, walk in darkness. And then he says, but we are in Christ. We have the truth that is in Jesus. And in verse 22 of chapter 4, so put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, how can I put off my old self? which belongs to my former manner of life if I'm not willing to even consider my past. If I'm not even willing to go, what things did I learn when harm was done to me that I'm carrying into the present? What sorts of responses, what sorts of um, 
behaviors. What, what maybe, you know, I, I hate conflict. I just run away from it. Or, or I'm a fighter and I love to just, what, what am I bringing into my present life that stems to all of this stuff? Now, Paul's talking about our flesh and our sin, the old man. But our old man, our flesh and our sin, was responding to all of these things. And when we have been grafted into Christ, one of the most beautiful things that Jesus will do is he will begin to help us heal along the lines of this past wounding. In fact, Robert Alter, who's a, a Hebrew scholar, has a slightly different interpretation of the name Manasseh. He says, and he makes a great case for it, and, and others have followed with him, that it's more properly this verb, to relieve me from the condition of debt. So if that's true, what Joseph is doing positively is naming his son, God has relieved me from the debt of my hardships caused by my family. That's powerful. Because everybody in this room has had hardships growing up. Unless you grew up somewhere in the Garden of Eden and it was just blissful for you, everyone has past hardships that have helped or been involved in formulating, forming who we are. And what Joseph is doing when Manasseh is born is he's saying, God has relieved me from the debt. You are set free from your past. In Galatians 5, when, when Paul says, you, for freedom you've been set free, he's saying, now you are free to examine these, one of the things he's saying, to examine the ways you live out of the past. The wounding, the law, the, the, all the systems that you've set in place are now something you can bring to Christ and be freed from. So that's point number two, knowing your past. But then he also names his second son, something that has more to do with the present. So we've looked at the future, we've looked at the past, but we have to understand the present. Joseph is completely sober-minded when it comes to his mission, his movement, and he names his second son Ephraim. And he says, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. That's powerful. Because again, thinking of the lottery, he could have easily just been like, look, this is not affliction. This is amazing. Have you seen Egypt? Like, it has plumbing and it has these chariots that go way fast. You know, he, this is glorious. And I'm number two. This is beautiful. He could have just become completely ensconced in the world around him to where you would have never known he was even tied to his family or the mission that he was on, the movement of God. But rather, he says, rightly, there is a flowering, there is a flourishing so Ephraim's name means that there's this fruitfulness, but he reminds himself, and anyone that's going to ask his other son's name when he's walking down the cobblestone, apparently the Egyptians had cobblestone. And, they, and what's your son's name? Ephraim. Yes, that means being fruitful in the land of my affliction. Affliction? Yeah, yeah, this is the, this is the land that purchased me. They didn't rescue me. When they found out I'd been kidnapped and was going to be sold into slavery, nobody showed up to say, What? That's crazy. Send them back home. They bought me. They put me into Potiphar's house. They love slavery here. And furthermore, Potiphar, who really knew I did nothing wrong, throws me into prison. This is the land of my affliction. He's now 30 years old. He has spent 13 years in affliction. 
Now, you know that this story of Joseph really precedes, uh, conceptually, it's very, very close, but time-wise, it's 400 years, but the Exodus, where ultimately God will rescue his people out of the land of Egypt. And then in 1 Peter, many scholars have called that Exodus ethics because Peter, a New Testament apostle, was really writing sort of a culmination of what it looks like as New Testament Christians to carry out the Exodus, right? He talks about in verse 17 that because we call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, we are to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile, fear meaning reverence. The way I memorized that I think was the NIV, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Doesn't that just have a great ring to it? ESV probably corrected some of it, but I love that, 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 that mindset, like we are strangers on this planet. Now, the way the church has historically made its mistakes are either A, we become chameleons and we blend so much into the culture around us, you wouldn't even know we're a church or a Christian at all. But the, op- the equally devastating way we can do is become a musk ox. That's like the tribalized church or Christian who is so afraid of culture, you surround your young with the oxen and, and you get away from culture. But the church over and over has call, is calling us to become transformative in the culture. In fact, the New Testament calls us priests. One of the big things that come out of the uh, Reformation was that we don't need the Catholic priest. You don't need me to tell you what scripture means. You are priests. The spirit dwells in you. We are on equal footing in Christ. And he is the one who uh, teaches you through his word. Yes, there are guides and there are people that help. We all need them. And in fact, we see this in Ephesians 4 yet again. He says this in chapter 4, just a few verses earlier. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints so they feel good about themselves as they carry on their establishment lives. Is that what he says? You could just tell by my facial expressions, right? And the establishment word. I'll read it again, but this time I'll read it correctly. Here's what these roles play for the church. To equip the saints, you guys. Now, by the way, saints are Christians. The saints aren't the people like the the one out of a million that did an amazing thing. We named them saints, such and such. No, every one of us are saints. And it says these roles have equipped the saints for the work of ministry. Guess what all of you are today? You have just been grafted into ministry, every one of you. If you don't leave here thinking you're a minister, a priest of Christ, then you are struggling with becoming an establishment Christian. But if you can leave here and say, wait a minute, if I'm in Christ, I am a minister of the gospel in the acre of land where I dwell, then you're on the way to becoming a movement Christian. That's exactly where Joseph was. He knew It took him probably 13 years in prison and in the house of Potiphar to realize, I have this role in front of me. And I want you to hear me. He worked exceedingly hard to gather the grain. It would have been very tempting to just say, I'm out. I can get 15 weeks away from this place before they would even know I was gone. No. Nor did he say, I'm going to live it up. I'm going to gather just enough to look successful 
So when the boss walks by, I kind of nod and show them the silos that are sitting out there full of grain, and I'm going to live it up. No, he was on a mission. And he knew the mission was this seed that was coming, the seed of his, um, that would become Jesus one day, someday. He didn't know all of the ramifications of that seed. He didn't understand all of the ways that would happen. But what he was aware of was that God had put his spirit on his life and given him these gifts and in this position to rescue this family to protect the Savior that would come. He didn't know when. None of us know when Jesus will return. But we've all been given more gifts because we now know the full story. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus lived a perfect life on earth. He was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. He rises from the death, dead. He's ascended into heaven. He oversees and rules his kingdom. And he places his spirit in each of you and I, grafting us into the movement for his glory. Are you a movement Christian? So I came up with some questions to help us through this process. Number one, how do you experience the future of life in, with Jesus? Like in your present daily lives, what are ways you could or you do experience the future with Jesus? Sounds strange, doesn't it? Because for most of us, we're like, I don't think about it. In fact, I'm scared to death of dying. Well, saints of old were not. We need to repent of our fear. And it's okay. I'm not saying you can't be afraid of dying, but my question is, do we long to see Jesus? And I can confess, there are many days I do not. Right? But, but that's opportunity to say, Lord, open my heart to want to be with you. Just like I want to watch the next week's football game. Just like I'm planning my trip. Just like I'm planning out that thing or longing for that promotion or, or daydreaming about this. Like we know as humans what it might look like to long for something. Let's pray that the Spirit would give us a longing for Jesus. Secondly, have you examined your story in light of your redemption? You know you're redeemed. If you're in Christ, you know you've been rescued. Before that, you know there's all this stuff. Have you thought about how Jesus has used that for you? See, Joseph was fully aware of how that led him to be ready for this moment. But most of us have shame around things we've done or that were done to us, and we have not connected the dots to Jesus' redemption. And yet Jesus has redeemed us, and these things were all part of that story, Romans 8 that lead us to who we are in the present to serve him as movement Christians. And just one more caveat there. If you don't do what I just said, if we don't do that, we're inflicting pain on people as we harbor these processes we learned in childhood to defend ourselves. Sarcasm, escape, harshness, any number of our Picadillas, our style. Oh, that's just the way he is. Yeah, that's a person who does not see how the gospel applies to their story. And then finally, how are you viewing your present life? Do we praise God for the fruitfulness in our lives? I do not, often. We go through our seven years of abundance and then a pandemic hits and we scatter like ants and we freak out and we never saw that coming. It's all through scripture. It's all through history. How are we handling our fruitfulness? How are we handling the, 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 the pandemic or any conflict that comes our way? 
are we aware that Jesus is with us in the process and he knows exactly what he's doing and we can trust him? Are we a movement Christian? Brothers and sisters, I'm really believing the more I'm around pastors, GA, Presbytery at this conference, online, whatever, I think many of you are hearing it too, the church is going, no, I don't mean great, I mean across the board is going through, I'll call it a revival. Yes, it's shrinking. That's the first step. But it's always the first step because there are a lot of people and a lot of us struggle with this that fell in love with the establishment. And I'm telling you, pastors are at the top of that spear. You get a job, you get paid, you get to do this, you get to do that, and then problems come. And I'm seeing pastors saying, I'm out. This is way too much. Are we movement Christians, are we going to repent of our longing for comfort when Jesus promises us we will suffer? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you suffered on our behalf. Forgive me and forgive us for always thinking suffering means we're doing something wrong, when in reality you tell us over and over that often it's because we're doing things right. Teach us to be movement, missional Christians. Teach us, Lord, to so long to be with you in the future that we rightly can see our story and our past as well as understand our present in light of redemption. Teach us to run to you into your arms. Teach us to also equally run away from our flesh and our old man and our old woman, our old patterns that daily rise up in all of our conflicts. Teach us to run to you. Amen.